Let us hear the word of the living God, the gospel account and the nativity of the Lord Jesus Christ from Luke chapter 2, the first 14 verses, reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on your word, and we ask that you would pour your spirit out upon us abundantly as we look into your word together, as we examine it, and really as your word examines us. We pray that you would be pleased to to change us, to Turn us to look to Jesus evermore during this Christmas season, to recognize that he is our righteousness, he is our hope, that you are the Lord and you are in control of all things, and you are working all things for your good purpose, working out your story of which Christmas really is the beginning of the fullness of time, it's the fullness of time when, when you came and fulfilled all the promises, and as we look forward to the return of Christ, we pray that we'd be faithful to him that we would continually look to him as our hope, that we would continually recognize that we are, are small players in your story, but yet people that you loved enough to give your son for, and that we would rejoice in Christ during this Christmas season, that we would enjoy, rejoice in Christ as we look at your word together, that you would be exalted, that we would go forth from here equipped to proclaim the glory of Jesus to the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, briefly, before I jump in to the sermon, I want to make a couple of, of points of order, just so you know. One, um, I'm Chad Vegas. I'm the pastor, Sovereign Grace Church. The beginning, if you were here right at the beginning, Jason Faber, our assistant pastor, came up and began the service. And the guy who just came up and read from Scripture and who will be leading communion doing the benediction is Randy Martin. Randy Martin is the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church. And those of you from Covenant Presbyterian Church that have joined us this morning for the service, we wanted to welcome you. I want to welcome our guests as well, but it's good to see uh, brothers dwelling together in unity and churches coming together to worship Christ together. And so we're thankful for this time. 
that we have together. The other thing I want to point out to you is that one of the things that helps brothers dwell together in unity is when you have really small children and a room with great acoustics is if you make, you know, really good use of the cry room, right? That, that we love kids to be in the service. We love for you to train them and have them here as part of the worship service. But if they're not cooperating with you, uh, we have provided a room right back here to the right. As soon as you go to this hall, turn exactly to the right. There is a self-serve nursery back there. Um, you can take your little ones back there. The sermon comes in live back there. I'll make sure Randy goes back there to check and make sure everything's loud enough for you um, and so that you can go out there and, and hear the sermon still while, while you're caring for your little ones. Let me say this. I was asked by the newspaper this week a very interesting question. They asked me if I would write a 300-word essay on the meaning of Christmas. But they made a very specific request in that vein. They said, we want you to tell us what you're going to tell your people, your church, about Christmas, given the fact that we have this bad economy. We're in a bad economy. There's been a lot of political unrest. What will you say to your Congress in light, or your congregation in light of what's going on with Congress, what's going on with our economy, et cetera, et cetera? And, and that article actually will appear in the paper tomorrow. But I was half tempted just to be a smart aleck. <laughs> Half tempted. Not all the way. <laughs> and just write one sentence. This is all I want to write. Jesus is still on the throne, whether the economy is good or bad, whether the president is Bush or Obama, whether the Congress is Republican or Democrat. Jesus is on the throne. And I wanted to do so with just that one sentence because our media and many of our people are obsessed with politics and the economy. Obsessed with it. In their minds, our religious belief, our faith, what we talk about at the Christmas season, this story that begins here that goes on to Calvary and Easter Sunday, that story we talk about, in their minds, that is simply a handmaiden for politics and economics. And, and here's how it goes. I was asked this question years ago. I ran for office the first time, one time, and I, I was asked this question. I mean, first question out of the, politicians, or the paper's mind was this. Are you one of those born-again, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And they said, okay, well, then we know you're a Republican. And, and I, I was sort of stunned. I said, so you asked me about my faith because you felt like my faith was not the terminal question. You felt there was some terminal question above and beyond that. Whatever my faith was, that was just serving what you think my political agenda is? You have it completely upside down. Christian theology is no handmaiden. And Jesus did not come to earth, go to the cross, raise on the third day, and ascend to the throne to rule and reign forever so that we could elect more people of a political party I like. Jesus is Lord of all. And the President and the Congress of the United States is just a footnote in Jesus' story in God's historical purposes. A footnote, and no more. But I decided to keep all my irritations to myself. And, and, and although I shared them with you, <laughs> I didn't share them in the paper. And I wrote something a bit more helpful. So I jumped into the Christmas story. And I jumped into how the Christmas story is good news that we all need to hear. And it's good news that we need to hear right now in this economy 
in the times of these, these political unrest, and it's news that we need to hear every day, every day. And I want to provide you with the three truths that I really went after in that article, as brief as it is. The three truths we learn from the Christmas story and how we should respond to them. So there's three. Here they are. You ready? The first one is this. The Christmas story demonstrates God's control over human events. The Christmas story demonstrates God's control or his sovereignty over human events. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Luke. Chapter 2 of Luke, verse 1, where Randy read from. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Notice how Luke starts this account. He actually starts this account with the idea of mentioning Caesar Augustus. He wants you to know that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And what I want you to notice about that is it's an exceedingly important historical detail, and it's an exceedingly important detail to the context of this text. What Luke is telling us is that he wants us to hone in on the fact that in some way Caesar Augustus is really serving a purpose that gets us to Jesus. And here's what he wants us to know about, here, here's what I, let me give you a little story about Caesar Augustus first. Who is Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Many of you have heard of Julius Caesar. He's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar tried to overthrow the Senate in Rome. The Senate was increasingly becoming a farce, so Julius Caesar wanted to overthrow it. Well, what happened was the Senate knew that he was trying to do that, so the Senate turned on Julius Caesar and killed him. At that point, there were three rulers in Rome. Three. They had three different areas. One was named Octavian, Octavian being the great nephew who's later called Caesar Augustus, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, Octavian. The other was named Lepidus, and the third was Mark Antony. Those three guys ruled various areas of Rome. And what happened is Lepidus fell. He died, he fell to Octavian, and Octavian took over that area. And then what occurred is Cleopatra, you've, many of you have heard of, Cleopatra went to Mark Antony and said to Mark Antony, let's go overthrow Octavian. And so they went after him, and they lost and when they lost, Mark Antony, eventually after Cleopatra was killed, Mark Antony killed himself. And Octavian took over the entire Roman Empire and became a very strong ruler in Rome. That all took place about 27 B.C. 27 B.C. he took over. At that point, they decided to call Octavian Caesar, which refers to him as being the ruler, the king, and they said they add this term Augustus, which means revered one or holy one. In other words, they called Caesar Augustus the holy or the revered ruler or emperor of Rome. And Octavian had unified the Roman Empire. And by the time Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus had become so powerful, had become so revered, that he was actually being called the son of God. There's an inscription on which they called him the Son of God. He was being called the Savior of the world. He was being called the one who brought the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. 
It was a peace, incidentally, sort of like Hitler brought peace to Germany. In 8 BC, Caesar Augustus gave the charge to take a census. In 8 BC, Caesar Augustus gave a charge to take a census. And the census was miserable and despised by the Jews. Why was the census miserable and despised by the Jews? Because here's what happens. When we take a census in America, what occurs? They send something in your mail. It's miserable and despised by us, and we only have to answer like five questions and mail it back in. Right? They actually all had to go back to their hometown, the town of the lineage. Not stay where they lived, but go back. And they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. They had to walk back. And so they had, in some cases, with Mary and Joseph, had to walk back 100 miles with, Joseph, or with Mary being exceedingly pregnant. Joseph had to walk her back 100 miles to their hometown so they could get registered for the census. And in verse 2, Luke details something about that census. He says this, verse 2, this was the registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, some people point out that there's a textual problem here, and part of it is an interpretation problem or a translation problem. When we translate it, we say this was the first, when Quirinius took his first census. The reason that's impossible is because Quirinius didn't become the governor of Syria until 6 or 7 A.D., and the way that the Greek text really ought to be read properly is this was the registration taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Just as easily translates that way. Prior to, in other words, Quirinius took a registration of Syria for tax purposes and what Luke is saying is it's not that registration. It's the registration that came before him that Caesar Augustus gave to the whole Roman Empire in 8 B.C. Now we know that Jesus was born before 4 B.C. because Herod died in 4 B.C. and Jesus was born prior to Herod's birth. In fact, we know that Jesus was born up to two years, I'm mean, Herod's death, sorry. No, Jesus was born up to two years before Herod's death because the wise men came to see him when he was almost two years old, somewhere between one and two years old. So right there between 8 B.C. and 4 B.C., we have the birth of Christ. And the birth of Christ happens at a time appointed by God. It happens at a time appointed by God, and Caesar Augustus becomes merely a pawn. See, here's the point of all this. When the census occurred, the people must have wondered, why is God letting this happen to us again? This isn't the first census that Caesar Augustus took. Why is God letting us, the Jewish people must have been, why is God letting us be under the oppressive rule of Caesar Augustus and making this happen to us again? See, we ask the same questions, don't we? Why has God allowed this thing to happen? Why has he allowed us to have this president or this Congress or these laws or this economy? And we forget what Proverbs 21.1 says, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand, and he, the Lord, turns it wherever he wills. Why has God allowed the economy to struggle so much? Why has God allowed me to lose my house? Why has God allowed me to lose my business? Why has God allowed me to lose my job? Why has God allowed me to lose my health or my success or my reputation? When we ask these questions, we rarely consider that God is always good and is always working for the good of his people. We don't always know what God will bring out of the events. But rest assured, we know that he's after 
the good of his people, and the glory of his name. And how do I know we tend to operate this way without thinking about the fact that God is working for our good and his glory even though we don't know? Because of the way we interact with people who are suffering. I've seen this happen personally, and I've seen our people do it to one another. What do we do when we're in this suffering? We ask potentially as Christians one of the dumbest and most uncompassionate questions I've heard asked. Here's what we do. We come up in the midst of their suffering. What is the Lord teaching you in all of this? What do you mean, what's the Lord teaching me? Maybe I don't have a clue what the Lord is teaching me. What does the question assume? The question assumes that I have a clue for the reason for my current suffering. And we just don't always know. Job had no idea. He even asked the Lord, what are you teaching me through all this? And the Lord said, I'm God and you're not. There's your answer, Job. Or it may suggest or assume that the cause of their suffering has something to do with something they've done wrong, which we don't always know. We should just be asking people, you know what? How can I pray for you right now? How can I pray for you right now and then pray for them? Why? Because we don't always know how God is working all things together for our good. We can't always see the big picture. Sometimes we find out, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we never know why God allowed us to go through suffering. But we know something global. We know that we must trust God and pray. We know that he's doing it for our good and his glory. And the reason I bring this up is because most people in the ancient world would have had no clue why, what God was teaching them or why he was doing this very thing when he called a census, when he let Caesar Augustus call a census in 8 BC. No idea why is God doing this, the Jews must have wondered. If someone had come up to the Jews at that point and said, what is God teaching you all this? In this census that's irritating. We don't know what he's teaching us. We just know we have to go back to our hometown and be registered, and it's very inconvenient. We don't know. But God was doing something they couldn't see, that they eventually saw. God was bringing Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. In other words, What Luke is telling us is God was bringing Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Mary could give birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David, and fulfill prophecy. The irony of the situation is that Caesar thought he was great. That Caesar's people thought he was in control of everything. That he was being called the son of God, the savior of the world, the revered king, the one who brought peace to Rome. Yet in Luke's story, and in God's economy, Caesar Augustus is merely a pawn. Hear that? It's all he is. The greatest ruler the world had ever known to the time is merely a pawn in God's eyes and bringing about God's redemptive purpose in Jesus And most of the people around there had no idea why that census was occurring, why they were undergoing the suffering, but God knew exactly what he was doing. And it was for our good and for God's glory. And what brings incredible irony to the situation is, not only was Caesar Augustus not in control and just a pawn, but God is bringing the truly holy king. 
not Caesar Augustus. And God is bringing the Savior of the world, the true one, not Caesar Augustus the Savior. And God is bringing the real Son of God, the one whom could bring true peace as a baby, as a crying, wedding, screaming baby. A baby born in an insignificant town, in an insignificant nation, to an insignificant teenage girl. And why did God do all this? Why? Why would God work it all out this way? This leads to my second point. Here it is. The Christmas story demonstrates God's saving love for the weak, poor, and helpless sinner. See, Jesus' birth is the exact opposite of what we would consider a worthy of someone of power and importance, isn't it? Exact opposite. Not only was his birth in an insignificant nation, Israel, who was being oppressed, to in an insignificant town, Bethlehem, to an insignificant teenage girl, Mary, but it was a seriously insignificant birthplace. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now what we imagine is that they came to this hotel and the innkeeper was standing at the door and said, no more rooms available, right? That isn't exactly how it happened. What occurred is they came back to Bethlehem. This inn is most likely a house where the family's home and there generally were two levels. The top level is where the family would stay and the bottom level is where they kept the animals and the horse troughs or the manger, etc. Probably what occurred is Joseph and Mary showed up to the house. Most of the family had come back to Bethlehem for the census. There was no room on the top level, so Joseph and Mary were put on the bottom level with the animals. There were probably others down there with them as well in the family. And that night, she gives birth, and she puts him in a manger. In a manger, just a horse trough, basically. That's his crib. So he's wrapped up real tight with these claws and stuck essentially in an animal's feeding trough in basically the barn of a family home. This is how the Lord of glory is born. See, I I have to imagine, and I'm sure some of you in here are unbelievers, I have to imagine this story must seem ridiculous to you. Why do I say that? Because we're saying that that a baby... A baby, a helpless baby, was the Lord of the universe at the same time. We're saying that not only is the Lord of the universe coming in a baby, but the Lord of the universe is then growing up as a man, and he's walking among, walking among us, and then going to a cross and dying like a criminal. We're saying that the Lord of the universe did not come born as a baby in a rich, powerful, well-respected family, but he came born as a baby among the weak, insignificant, wretched, and sinful. That's who he came to and who he came for. He came to save the weak, the insignificant, the wretched, and the sinful. And he, did, he died like a common criminal, not like a king. It's got to sound like nonsense to unbelievers. 
We must understand that we're saying something, believers. We're saying something in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's foolishness to the world. We are saying that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that? We're saying that God is declaring to all of us that in reality, in fact, we are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually needy, spiritually poor, and spiritually weak. We're saying that all of us are ultimately, in common vernacular, jacked up. That no matter how hard we work at it, no matter how hard we pull up on our bootstraps, no matter how many good deeds we do, we cannot, we will not ever overcome our spiritual poverty, our spiritual weakness, our spiritual bankruptcy. We need the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. And we're saying that this universal spiritual bankruptcy, that it applies to everybody. That was a redundant statement on purpose. It's universal, and it applies to all of us. We're all bankrupt, all in need of Jesus. Look, I hear people all the time tell me, isn't there another way to be saved other than Jesus? Well, if there is, then it was an awfully cruel thing for the Father to put his son through for some unnecessary exercise in, I don't know what, divine comedy, I suppose. Where God essentially says, you know what, I think it's a really nice thing to put my son through this so the world can see I love him, but they don't all need him. There's some other way they can be saved. Somehow, they can generate some kind of spiritual wealth on their own. The light that they have, if they just respond to that, they'll be saved. Here's the problem. Romans 1 tells us clearly, Romans 1, 18 and following, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. In other words, we are universally sinful, universally spiritually bankrupt. We have universally responded to the light that God has given us by suppressing it. And we universally need the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And God came to insignificant, weak people like us. Look at how the angels even come to some insignificant shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Listen to what's happening here. He comes to shepherds, the angels do, and they announce it to shepherds. Why does that matter? Because shepherds were despised. They were considered thieves in the day. They're actually, according to some Hebrew Mishnah, they were actually considered just one step above lepers. Lepers being the bottom, next up being shepherds. And that's who the angels come and announce the gospel to first. They come and announce it to these men who are despised. And now look what Luke calls the coming of Christ. Look what he says. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Notice this is good news not just for the shepherds. 
It's good news of great joy for all the people. We all need to hear the good news, every single one of us, without exception. But this is also good news, and I, want to, I don't want to miss this point because Luke's making it. It is also good news for the despised and untrusted shepherds. You, you may feel like, you know what? I, I'm glad God did this, but, but I'll come to Jesus. If you're an unbeliever in here, I'm not going to come to Jesus and start walking with Jesus until I get my life straightened out. It's a mess. There are things I need to get straightened out first. There, there are, are things I need to do because my marriage is a mess. My family's a mess. My kids are rebelling. I'm still caught up in drinking too much alcohol. I've got all these problems in my life. I'll come to Jesus once I get all that squared away. But let's be very clear. This gospel is for all people. All people. In your current state. It is not just for all people. It is even for the shepherds. For the bottom of the barrel. That's the point that's being made with perhaps the greatest unto you in the Bible. Look what it says in verse 11. For unto you, unto you is who? The shepherds, the despised, the weak, the sinful. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we need to be saved, all of us, from what? What do we need to be saved from? Maybe I should change the statement to from who? We need to be saved from God. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that before. Some of you have. We need to be saved from God. God sends his son Jesus to save us from himself. Hear that? We are sinners who've offended our holy creator. His wrath burns against us. That's why the cross is necessary. It's not just good, it's not just optional, it's necessary. Jesus was not only born, he was born to do something. He was born to live perfectly in our place, to pay our penalty on the cross, and to raise from the dead conquering death. And at the cross we see two truths. We see that God is so angry with our sin, it is so abhorrent to him that God must crush his son just to relate to us. See, that's the ugly part of the cross, isn't it? That God must murder his own son on the cross so he can relate to us. That's how abhorrent our sin is. The cross tells us that. It's a picture of that. It cries out to you, sinner. It also tells us something else. It tells us that God loves us so much that he is willing to do this horrific act in order to save us. That's the beautiful part of the cross. That's the good news of the cross. Our sin is so abhorrent, God must kill his son to relate to us, and our God is so loving that he's willing to kill his son to relate to us. That's why apart from Christ, we cannot be saved. We cannot be at peace with God. Instead, we'll be cast out and we'll be justly condemned to hell for our sin because we're God's enemies naturally. And we can't make peace with God. I hear people all the same time, you guys have heard this say, saying as well, people say, you know I've made my peace with God. It, you're not the offended party. You're the offender. 
You can't make the peace. Which leads to our third point, and this is this. The Christmas story demonstrates that God is the only peacemaker between himself and man. God is the only peacemaker between himself and man. Look at verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, what do the angels proclaim? They proclaim peace among those with whom he's pleased or on whom his favor rests. The phrase is speaking of God's grace to us. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you haven't received the grace of God and you're not at peace with God. So what do you do? You look to Jesus. Look to him. Turn from your self-righteousness, from your claim to the fact that you bring anything to the table that somehow will reconcile you with God. Turn from that. Turn from your sin. It's called repentance. And turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus and you're saved. That's it. Turn away from self and turn to Jesus and you're saved. To everyone here, I want to say this. When we look at the birth and life and death of Jesus, we should be humbled. Humbled. The creator of the universe had to become part of his creation. The lawgiver had to put himself under the law. The one who is holy had to die for sin in order to make peace with us. And he loved us enough to want to do all this. See, according to 2 Corinthians 5, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says there that, that God is reconciling the world to himself. Hear that? Not that we're running around reconciling ourselves to God. God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it tells us how this happens. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, Perfect, holy, undefiled, blameless, Jesus. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Keeping the law on every point. Doing the Father's will on every account. Seeking to glorify the Father only. Loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Perfectly, in every instance, all his life. And loving his neighbor as himself. That's what Jesus did. He knew no sin. God made him who know no sin be sin for us. In other words, take on our sin. Suffer the penalty for our sin because we failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, the great commandment is not the gospel. The great commandment is the great summary of the law. We failed to keep it. We sinned again and again and again. We failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus did all of it, and then he took all of our sin on himself. God made him who knew no sin be sin for us. So that in him, in Christ, when we're united to Christ through faith, we might be the righteousness of God. We sinners, 
the righteousness of God. I want you to hear this great exchange. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived our lives. So that when you stand before him, God will treat you as if you lived Jesus' life. John Bunyan talks about the time when he was saved. John Bunyan is the great Puritan Baptist tinker who was a preacher whom John Owen, another great Puritan, used to make the comment that I'd give up all my writings if I could just preach one sermon like John Bunyan, one of the greatest writers in the history of Christianity. Give it all up just to preach like one like John Bunyan did. John Bunyan says that when he became a believer, he was walking down a road and he had tried to generate enough righteousness to please God all his life through religious duties of, of some sort. And he always thought in some way that maybe if I believe in Jesus, that'll get me started, but there are gotta be ways I can improve upon or I can detract from my righteousness. And so I'm always in trouble with God because in some way I'll improve upon it and that'll make me good and, in some, and I'm prideful and then in some way I'll detract from it. And that'll make me, you know, in bad standing with God and questioning my salvation. And John Bunyan said he realized at one point, all at once he said he realized that his righteousness is at the right hand of God in the person of Jesus. And this is what he said. My righteousness, my righteousness cannot be improved upon or detracted from by me. For my righteousness is the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what's the proper response to this? Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here's the simple response. You can't do anything to save yourselves. You can't do, believers, you can't do anything to add to your righteousness. Nor can you do anything to detract from your righteousness. The response is very simple. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my holiness before God. Jesus is everything. And we must repent of the sham that we are somehow in control, of the sham that we can be significant enough, good enough, or do enough to pro provoke God's approval. And must bring peace Somehow we must bring peace between God and ourselves. Somehow I must go make my life right before I go to God. No, listen, if you think you're doing that, you're just trying to save yourself. All you're doing is saying, I'm going to turn from complete abandonment of Jesus for my own sin. I'm going to turn from that to complete abandonment of Jesus, not looking to him, but instead I'm going sinful, I'm going to go self-righteous. I'm going to go pursue good works on my own. And I'm going to somehow make peace with God. And what the word of God says is very clear. Jesus is our righteousness. Turn from that sham, repent of it, and look to Jesus. That's what Christmas declares to us 
I want you to hear how Paul summarizes this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. This is speaking to believers. You need to consider the gospel. Not just the unbelievers in here who need to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. You believers need to consider your calling. Listen to it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made. Whom is Jesus? God made Jesus our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's boast in Jesus this Christmas. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who boast in Christ, who recognize he is our only hope. Father, we pray for those who don't know you right now, those who are not believing, who are looking to themselves. Father, we pray that you would humble them, that you would teach them that their only hope is to look to Jesus and that they would look to Jesus and be saved. Father, for those of us who are believers here, we pray that you would humble us, that our only boast would be Jesus. That we would not think that somehow our righteousness, our good deeds, somehow accrue credit to our account to make us more righteous in standing than we are in Jesus. It's impossible. Father, help us to remember that, to be humble, to look to you during this Christmas season, to recognize that on Christmas day, that on the day of your son's birth, our righteousness came to earth, lived for us, died for us, rose for us, ascended to your right hand, where he ever rules and reigns and intercedes on our behalf, that we would trust in you, be thankful for you, that you would be honored in all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.